Um, last week we began a series on dealing with your enemies, and I told you how there are almost 400 verses in the Bible about dealing with enemies. It's such a broad sweep. Um, everything from attack bears and sinkholes and fire from heaven to the much larger tradition of trying to deal with ourselves, of asking God to intervene when we need help, of trusting God's peace and receiving that gift and knowing that God will act. And that's the larger um, tradition of Scripture. It's a tradition that Jesus draws on. But I also dangled a tasty carrot in front of you. And um, I kind of tempted you with the idea that I would tell you that the one effective thing you can do to attack an enemy. Not just work on yourself, but actually go on the offensive and do something to them that might actually change them. In fact, it stands a good chance of changing them. And I want to read you a scripture today to set this up, the story of David. We're, we're still in the book of Samuel, only we're now in chapter 24, and I'll fill you in on what happened a little later. Actually, I can tell you right now. Um, so Samuel was the man that, that Hannah had last week. He, so she had a baby. He grew up to be a man named Samuel. And he led the people of God from the time of the judges where they were really pendulum swinging between um, living the right way with God and then back into depravity. And he brought them from that time when everybody was doing whatever they thought was right into the time of the kings. And he was a righteous leader, Samuel was. He stood up. The people followed him. He was a priest, and he was also their leader. And the people said, we want a king. And so God gave them a king. They kind of wanted to be like everybody else. And so it wasn't actually a good thing. They're like, let us be like all the other nations and have a king. And God's like, I'm your king. And they're like, no, we want a king. And he said, well, okay, you can have a king. But however the king goes, if the king is good, then the nation will thrive. If the king is not good, then the king is going to pull down your nation with. And they said, please give us a king. We just need to be like everybody else. So God anointed a man named Samuel to be the king or Samuel anointed a man named Saul to be the king. And Saul did a great job at first. He was godly. He looked the part. He was head and shoulders above everybody else. But sadly, he didn't hold on to power very well. It corrupted him. And he started thinking he knew better than God in certain situations. And so he fell away from God. This man, Saul, did the first king. And so God, through Samuel, through Hannah's son, anoints a new king. And that king is David. And um, as you can imagine, if there are two kings in one kingdom, um, that doesn't work very well. And especially if the first king is kind of criminally insane, which is what Saul was. So this is a point in um, David's life where Saul is hunting him, and we're going to hear what happens. After Saul returned from fighting the Philistines, he was told that David had gone to the wilderness of En Gedi. So Saul chose 3,000 elite troops from all Israel. He's basically getting out SEAL Team 6, or the Rangers, and they're going to go after um, David. I went to search for David and his men near the rocks of the wild goats. At the place where the road passes some sheepfolds, Saul went into a cave to relieve himself. Yes, that's in the Bible. But as it happened, David and his men were hiding further back in that very cave. Now's your opportunity, David's men whispered to him. Today the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy in your power to do with as you wish. So David crept forward. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. We're going to look at the weapon that David picked up in just a minute. And I'm going to come back to this verse and show you how he used it. But I want to go to Paul first and talk about how Paul said we would use this weapon against our enemies. Powerful, mighty weapon. And this is how he said you would, we would learn how to use it in Romans 12. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, he will heap burning coals on his head. 
Now, I knew when I read that to y'all, inside y'all would be going, I got tricked. I was looking for a weapon, and she dangled this carrot and said that she had it, and I'm, I'm t being told that the weapon is mercy, and that doesn't sound very good. But before you lynch me, because you're angry, um, look at this. What does, what does Paul say that when we pull out kindness or we pull out mercy will happen to our enemies? Burning coals on their heads. This is not a warm fuzzy. Being kind to your enemies won't give them a fuzzy feeling inside. It's not going to prosper them. It's actually going to do something rather dramatic to them that might make them realize the error of their ways. That's why this weapon, above all the others you can do, above all the other things you see people doing to their enemies and fighting back, they have no chance. Retaliation or the cold shoulder or whatever it is that we do with our enemies, they have no chance of changing that person. Kindness stands a chance. It stands a chance. So we need to learn how to use that because it's the one thing that might get another person to change. Most of the time we can only work on ourselves. This might work on someone else. Now, where did Paul get this idea about being kind, about feed, if our enemy is hungry, not going, ha ha, and going to eat a big hamburger right in front of them? Where did Paul get this idea? Jesus, right. He got it from Jesus. Jesus not only said to be kind to his enemies, he lived it. He was very kind to difficult people. You remember when he's being crucified, he used some of that precious breath. He would have had to push himself up on the nails of his feet to get a breath to say anything. And one of the things that he says is, Father, forgive these people. He uses some of his last breath to forgive, to show mercy. So we know that he not only talked the talk, he was walking the walk. And what he said was, do good to those who hate you. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? Do good to those who hate you. Here's what he didn't say. Feel good about those who hate you. He, he doesn't command us to have a feeling, you see. We're not going to feel particularly warm and fuzzy about people who are mean to us or mean to our spouse or mean to our parents or mean to our children. We're not going to feel loving, but we can control the way we act. And Jesus says, do good. Act in a loving way. You don't have to feel it. You just have to act it. Act like this. Where did he get it? Well, he got it all the way back from the beginning when God set the nation of Israel, when he called them out of slavery, he gave them rules to live by about how to be in community because the world was going to be watching these people who said they were God's people. And one of the things, interestingly enough, is how you treat your enemies. In the laws of the land, the founding documents, God says, this is how you treat your enemies. This is way back in the heyday of bears and wool, you know, sinkholes and everything. And God says, if you see your enemy's donkey or ox going astray, take it back to them. Now, back in those days, that's like your livelihood, that donkey or that ox, that's how you plow your fields, that's how you get carried into town, that's how you haul goods, that's your livelihood. And suddenly, your neighbor who's an enemy, their ox is wandering away, wouldn't you be like on the phone, I saw so-and-so's ox wandering away, you know, like, ha-ha, God just got them. And God says, don't think of it that way. If you see evil about to befall your enemy, you intervene to stop it. Here's another thing that God says right after that. If you see your enemy's animal trapped under something, set it free. You work to bring prosperity to your enemy. 
You work to take that donkey back to the donkey who's giving you a hard time because that's who the people of God are. We are people who take donkeys back to donkeys. Do y'all, are y'all following me here? I don't know what she's talking about. We have to be kind to them. That's what God says. That's in the founding laws um, that we should treat our enemies with kindness. That's in Exodus 23. The good news is, if we learn how to wield these weapons, they could actually change someone's heart. But the reason that we don't ever get a chance to do that is because they are so hard to use. It is just so hard to do good to somebody who's difficult. I had a lady say, Pastor Laura, I've actually done that. She said, there's this llama that my neighbors have, and it was out in the middle of the road. And I guess it had been fed from cars or something. And she said, I had to stop people and say, somebody help me get this llama back in this neighbor's yard. And so she and her grandkids and like some people from the road are like trying to get this ornery llama back into their yard. And I said, were they nice neighbors? And she said, no, they're terrible. I said, did you ever hear back from them? She said, no, I just left a message that said, I got your llama back into your yard. That's what we're called to do. We're called to return the llama. And this is how David did it. And let me set you up for a little bit more about David. You know that um, Samuel anointed him as king to replace Saul, but God didn't get rid of Saul. I always think, like, what was God thinking at that moment? You know, like, this is a bad king, and God says you're a bad king, and you're not going to rule anymore, and I'm going to anoint a new king, and, and then what? Like, then what, work it out, you know, like, figure that out? And so David and Saul... Um, were intricately linked, actually. And they became more so, not before David was anointed, but afterwards. Um, David was a great, he began his military career by facing down Goliath. But he became a great military hero. He was a great leader and a commander of people, and people loved him and followed him and sang songs about him. And so he, he was rising to power, and he, Saul's the commander of the army. So that's one link that he has with Saul and David. Um, Saul is from the beginning, trying to get rid of David. And he tries to do this by marrying. He sees that his daughter is in love with David. And so he gives him like this suicide mission, like, and I, go read it yourself. He has to get an amount of Philistine foreskins, like a hundred, I think. I think I'm right about that. Bring them back. You know what I'm talking about. And that's his like bridal price to get this wife. So it's a suicide mission. So what he hopes is that David's going to not be able to kill this many Philistines, he'll die in the process and he'll be rid of his enemy. But David, God is with him and David does it. And he, so then David becomes Saul's son-in-law. Okay, so then he's even more angry. And, and David was a gifty, gifted musician. He could just, the Psalms, he wrote so many of them and those were worship songs. And the only thing that would soothe Saul because he was increasingly agitated and depressed, imagine if you walk, you walk away from God and God says, you're not the king anymore, but you keep being the king. He's agitated and depressed. David would play the harp for him. It would calm him down. So he hates David, but David is also ministering to him. David's best friends with his oldest son, with Saul's oldest son by the name of Jonathan. A beautiful, wonderful example of good friendship. And so there's all these links but Saul is trying to kill David. David is not trying to kill Saul. He's not trying to take his kingdom away. He figures God's going to work that out. But Saul is trying to kill David. And he tries it in these um, aroundabout methods of like suicide missions. And then when that fails, you know you have an enemy when they throw a spear at you. Okay, so, he, so David's trying to play and soothe Saul. And Saul's like grabs the spear and flings it at David with such force that David leaps out of the way and it impales in the wall. 
That's when David knows it's not going so well with Saul. And so later on, Saul sends hitmen to his home. That's also another sign that things aren't going well with the ruling monarch when they send hitmen to your home. And his wife, Saul's daughter, um, says, you've got to get out of here. My father's trying to kill you. And so he flees, and she creates a David-looking bump in the bed and tells the hitman that, you know, he's sick and, and gives him time to get away. And when he flees, you know, he has nothing. He's left his home. He has nothing. You know, there's some guys who come around him who are similarly dissatisfied, so he's hiding out in the wilderness. And Saul begins to kill people who help him, even priests who help David. He kills he takes his wife, Michael, the one who helped him get away, and forces her to marry another man. Saul is a bad, bad guy, and he's trying to kill David. And so David, here he is, um, searching for David to kill him, and he goes to relieve himself in the cave, right? And there in the darkness, unbeknownst to Saul, is David, armed to the teeth with all these guys who have lost everything, who are dedicated to him, and they're saying, this is the work of God. God has brought your enemy into this cave defenseless so you can kill him. And I want to show you the, the long version of what David does. So David crept forward and cut off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. And then skip down a little bit to verse 7. David restrained his men and did not let them kill Saul. So David takes a piece of Saul's robe and the guys are like, uh-uh, we're, we're killing that dude. And he has to hold them back. He holds them back. Um, after Saul left the cave and gone on his way, David came out and shouted after him, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked around, David bowed low before him. Then he shouted to Saul, why do you listen to the people who say I'm trying to harm you? This very day, you can see with your own eyes it isn't true, for the Lord placed you at my mercy back here in the cave. Some of my men told me to kill you, but I spared you. For I said, I will never harm the king. He is the Lord's anointed one. So David's going back to the, the idea that God anointed this man. And even though he's fallen from grace, David doesn't want to mess with somebody God anointed. He anoint, so he's anointed one. Look, my father, at what I have in my hand. It's a piece of the hem of your robe. I cut it off but I didn't kill you. This proves I'm not trying to harm you and I have not sinned against you even though you've been hunting for me to kill me. So that's the first part. David in that cave, his soldiers are like, grab your sword. But David doesn't pick up his sword, he picks up kindness. He picks up mercy and compassion. And he won't kill Saul. He sees the situation differently. He doesn't see it as a chance to kill this man, he sees it as a chance to show mercy and to be a witness. And so he cuts off a hem, the hem of his garment. Um, now notice what this does. I want you to read, um, we're going to come back to verse 12. I want you to read in verse 16. When David has finished speaking, Saul called back, is that really you, my son David? Then he began to cry. And he said to David, you are a better man than I am, for you have repaid me good for evil. You have been amazingly kind to me today, for when the Lord put me in a place where you could have killed me, you didn't do it. So Saul realizes, in fact, Saul thinks, God put me there so David could kill me and he didn't do it. Who else would let his enemy get away when he had him in his power? May the Lord reward you well for the kindness you have shown to me today. 
And now I realize that you are surely going to be king and that the kingdom of Israel will flourish under your rule. Wow. The first thing that kindness does is it cuts open the soul of your enemy. When you are kind, it reveals not just their soul, it reveals yours. And so what Saul realizes that day is it's like it cuts away all of his blindness. He had been blinded by rage and anger and jealousy. The scriptures say he was jealous. He was afraid. And suddenly David is kind. He spares his life. And for this one moment, Saul can see clearly. And he sees this man and he says, you're better than I am. Whoa. You deserve to be king. When you are king, this nation will flourish. Now, does he give up his throne at this point? That would have been the logical step, right? Doesn't go that far, but it reveals his soul. He is forced to say it. David doesn't have to say, I'm the better man. Saul says that when David behaves with kindness. So the first thing that kindness does is it reveals the soul of your enemy for what it is. It reveals your soul as well. That's powerful. There's nothing else that will do that. Nothing else that will show. And the interesting thing is this is not something that happens in private where these two men see each other's soul and then nobody else sees it. David did choose his time well. He was surrounded by SEAL Team 6, you know, all the crack commandos that Saul has, and his guys in this cave. And he's able to show in this, as they watch, who is the better man. And what we have to remember is that when we are kind, people are watching. When we are not kind, people are watching. You know, people know you are a Christian. They know that you say you're a Christian. And they will be watching how you behave to see if you act like one. They will be watching you. We don't get it right all the time, y'all, but remember, they know, the world knows who you say you are. And when you do something that nobody else would do, like what David did this day, all, the, all of his guys are like, this is your moment, kill him. And their leader says no. Imagine what that did to them that day, who that taught them to be. Imagine what Saul's people thought when they saw David. Here is the guy, the king has had us hunting to kill. He could have killed our king. He didn't. Whoa, who really needs to be king? I mean, they saw that day. This is a witness. The way you behave is a witness. I'll tell you a story. There was this woman in a church that I know about. It was not a church I serve, but she was working on their staff. Her husband, um, and she made a lot, or well, her husband made a lot of money. They pledged the building campaign, and she got ill, and the church let her go. They didn't see her through her illness. They let her go. They said, we can't afford to pay you during this illness and let her go from the staff. And the amazing thing that she did was she, they had made this large pledge to the building of this new sanctuary. And everybody, including me, would have thought that the fine howdy-do would have been, and now you don't have that pledge anymore. That's what all of us would have done, said, if you do wrong to me, then I will take the resources God has given me and go elsewhere. And the amazing thing was that they continued to fulfill their building pledge. And the pastor of that church was so moved that he wrote that woman a letter, and on the day that that building was completed, he sat her on the front row. And he said, I'm sorry. 
That was such a powerful testimony to me. Because all of us, when we see the donkey going astray, if we have the power to kick that thing in the rear end and get it going faster, we're going to kick it. And God says, no, you're not. You're going to run after it and bring it back. You are going to be the righteous people in a world of the unrighteous. You're going to be a shining light. You're going to learn how to be kind. That's you because the world is watching. So kindness cuts our souls. It shows who's right. It is a powerful witness to those who are watching, and they are watching you. The third thing is that it reminds us who is the judge. This is what David says in verse 12. He, he just says, I haven't sinned. And then he says, may the Lord judge between us. Perhaps the Lord will punish you for what you are trying to do to me, but I will never harm you. As that old proverb says, from evil people come evil deeds. So you can be sure I will never harm you. Who is the king of Israel trying to catch anyway? Should he spend his time chasing one who is as worthless as a dead dog or a single flea? We know that's not true. David's worth a lot more than that. May the Lord therefore judge which of us is right and punish the guilty one. He is my advocate and he will rescue me from your power. So David says, ultimately, this is God's decision to make. I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to mete out justice because I'm not the judge. God is. But God, come judge between us. And what does he say? May the Lord therefore judge which of us is right and punish the guilty one. David is saying, God be my judge, and I know you don't need my help. You don't need me, God, to be your mini judge. That's hard for us too. Because we like to see justice and seeing evil and Saul was evil rubs us the wrong way. And we think maybe it's in my power to like mete out justice. No, it's not. Let God do that. You know, David has another chance to kill Saul after this and doesn't take it. And in a few chapters, Saul dies. And do y'all know who kills Saul? One person in the first service knew the answer to this question. It's kind of a trick question. Who kills Saul? Did yeah, hey, 11 o'clock, way to go. Can give yourself, as my daughter says, kiss your brain. Give your brain a kiss. <laughs> You're smarter than 9.30, but don't tell them. Oh, no, if we put that on the podcast, they're going to hear it. Okay. Anyway, um, Saul kills himself. Saul kills himself. Isn't that interesting? Saul kills himself. He didn't probably have to, but he never turned around. And so the one who got revenge on him was himself. So remember, you are not God's mini judge. God doesn't need your help. Really. God says, vengeance is mine. It is mine to repay. Remember that. God does not need my help to be the judge. He doesn't need your help. You be yourself. You act uprightly. You be his child. And let God sort out the justice of that, of the, of the evil people. Finally, and this is, this is so encouraging to me. David was kind, and you are called to be kind too, and I am called to be kind, but we are not called to be fools while we're doing it. David knew clearly who his enemy was. He knew that here's a man who, while I played the harp to him, threw a spear at me. He knew that here's a man who sent hitmen to kill me while I slept. He knew that here's a man who has killed people who have even given me a little bit of bread. He knew Saul's heart. And so when he speaks to Saul, when he confronts him with kindness, he is shouting at him from a distance. Did you notice that? 
So David is staying. He's going to use kindness as his weapon, but he's staying out of range of Saul's weapons, the conventional weapons. He's going to shout at him from a safe distance. Now look at this. Um, Saul says, oh, David, you know, you deserve to be king, and may the Lord bless you and all this kind of stuff. And David, you know, makes vows with Saul, and Saul goes home, and where does David go? Home? Well, I guess it's all over now. He goes back to his stronghold. Y'all, I wish that being kind was this magic bullet that if you found the strength to be kind, then suddenly your enemy's heart would be changed, not just in that moment, but forever, and they would be always kind to you, and you could be best friends with them. But that probably is not going to happen. And we are not, as Christians, called to be fools and think, well, if I'm kind, then you will be magically changed. We're called to put our actions in God's hands and say, this is what God is calling me to act like, but I'm still going to keep a safe distance from you because you're not under God's control. And so this is what Jesus said about this. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. That's in Matthew 10. And I feel like sometimes as Christians, we need to hear that, that we have permission to be kind, but not to be a doormat and not to be a fool. And if you know someone to be a hurtful, evil person, don't let them keep hurting you. Stand at a safe distance. Go back to your stronghold. Be kind to them. David was kind to Saul again and again and again, even when his behavior didn't change. But don't let them hurt you. He stood at a safe distance. Now, here's another good thing. None of you probably have someone who is actually trying to kill you, right? If you do, come talk to me, because <laughs> we need to help you. But we all of us have people who have betrayed our trust, who have stolen our ideas and claimed them as their own, who undermine us at work, who stab us in the back. We have people who are ugly to defenseless people in our lives, ugly to our children, ugly to an ailing parent ugly to a spouse who isn't defenseless, but still we feel like we need to stand up. We, we play against teams and our, our, our own selves or our children play against teams who act in unsportsmanlike ways. And what I would remind us to do is number one, what we talked about the first time, you control your behavior. There's very little you can do to change somebody else's behavior. But if you do want to change their behavior, then you be kind. You do good. That's what God is calling us to do in all of the days of our lives, to be kind. And it is a witness to other people. And if we have the strength to be kind, then it's going to end up looking a little bit like this. Mark, it's not going to do very well without the audio. We'll watch it? Okay. Well, we were both neck and neck fighting for the conference championship. As a senior, this was Sarah Tukolsky's last chance to win a championship. She'd never had Washington State on a field inside a chain-linked fence in a game fewer than a hundred people saw. 
a home run memorable not for the distance it traveled or the game it decided, but for the meaning it carried. The last Saturday in April, the second game of a softball doubleheader between Central Washington and Western Oregon. Well, we were both neck and neck fighting for the conference championship. As a senior, this was Sarah Tukolsky's last chance to win a championship. She'd never hit a home run before, not in college, not in her life. At 5'2", I'm not very tall. Um, I, I'm more a line drive hitter. I don't hit for power. But in the top of the second inning, with two runners on, on the second pitch, that changed. that pitch and it just went <laughs> and we're just cheering and the runners are cheering as they round the base to head to home and then I'm going where's Sarah in her excitement Tukolsky failed to touch first base so she quickly turned back her pivot like just didn't pivot with her and I heard her kind of yell and she's dropped to the ground and I was like oh no just fell immediately and was in a lot of pain. Just, you know, I tried to keep my legs straight, but I was in so much pain that I couldn't really keep still. Tukolsky, with a torn ACL, crawled back to first base. She was a long way from reaching home plate and keeping her first and only home run. When she got back to first base, she just, she laid there and she hugged on the first base and then I, at that time, I was staring at the base and I go, what on earth are we going to do? And I turned the umpire standing right next to me. I said, what is the ruling if I put somebody in for Sarah? He said, it'll be a two-run single. If anybody would have on her team would have helped uh, Sarah, she would have been a called, called out. That was the problem. None of Tukolsky's teammates were allowed to touch her. That's when Central Washington's Mallory Holtman, a player with more home runs than any other in conference history, a player for the opposing team, spoke up. I went to the home plate umpire and asked if we could pick her up and carry her, and he looked at me a little strange. And the umpire went and said, yes, you can do that. I'm still standing there in shock. I don't, I said, thank you so much. We asked her, she's like, is it okay if we pick you up and carry you around the bases? And I say yes, and you know, and say thank you. And she says, you hit the ball over the fence, you deserve it. For that reason only, because she deserved it, Holtman and Wallace began to carry the injured Tukolsky, stopping to touch her left foot on each base as the three made their way around the diamond. We actually started laughing because we were just wondering what this would look like to all the people in the stands. When I looked up, I, I didn't see, you know, giant like, smiles and screams. I saw emotion and tears and, and people crying. It's a great moment when someone has character to step up and do the right thing at the right time. It's emotional. You're proud. 
be associated with those kids. That's the first home run of the season for number eight, Sarah Tikolsky. The fact is, you know, I, I made my goal, I hit a home run, and um, yeah, it's my last at bat of my career, but I, you know, made my goal, so I'm proud of myself. Mallory Holtman, Liz Wallace, and the Central Washington team lost the game that day, 4-2. Sarah Tukolsky lost the rest of her season and her career to a knee injury. But for the spirit of sportsmanship, a greater victory. Made on a long trot around the bases, a trip that truly touched them all. I have a lot of respect for her and put her in high regards, um, her and her teammates. And, you know, I can't thank her enough. Tom Ronaldo. That team lost the game. Did you see that? Because they were kind, they lost the game. But they won that battle, didn't they? Those two girls did the more important thing. They did what was right, and they were kind. And so that story endures. You do the right thing too, even when it's hard, even when it costs you, even if it costs you the game, do the right thing. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we know that you never call us to something that is easy, but that your path is so blessed, that there is such joy in walking that path of righteousness that David talked about, even when it's hard. And so help us to hear your call to do good, not just to the easy people, not just to the people we like, but to the people who hate us to the people who treat us meanly without reason, to the people who would harm us if they could, help us to live differently, Lord. Help us to repay evil with good, to pull out mercy when others pull out hate, to be your light in this world, Lord, not just so that we would look good, but so that you would look good for the glory of your name and for the sake of those who are watching. We ask this in Jesus' name, who gave us such a great example of it. Amen.